Screenless. The TV drama is imagined. The work and the guests are real. Making a soundtrack. Opening scene and action. Dan, are you at home or are you somewhere else? It sounds like there's something going on. Hey, hey, just, you know, popped out down the club, Daddy-o. Daddy-o? Just, hey, hey, Hans. How you doing? How you doing? Yeah, yeah, hey. John, John, nice to see you again, mate. Yeah. Where are you? I'm, I'm down the club. I hear some, uh, some music playing. Yeah, I'm in the jazz club, man. Getting in the zone. Wow. It seems unlikely, Dan. Hey, Darcy, how you doing? Love John Strictly. Shame you're not on it. Sorry. You were saying, Gareth? Did you uh, happen to arrive on your horse, perhaps? Uh, yes, of course. Oh, hang on a sec. I forgot to lock him. Beep, beep. There we go. That's better. You're not at a jazz club, are you? No, I'm not. No. Sorry. Are you illustrating what on-set music could sound like in a scene? Uh, yes, I kind of am. So I'm, no, I'm actually in the studio, of course. You are illustrating onset music, which is kind of linked to our guest today. Yes, because we have the wonderful Simon Wyside on today. Simon actually arranges music for onset things. Yes, as well as being a composer in his own right and an orchestrator and stuff, he's found quite a nice little niche where he does a lot of uh, arrangements and helps out on set and all sorts for uh, the music that is shown in screen. Yes, for TV dramas, which is where the link is. Yeah, so uh, we'll be chatting with Simon in a little bit after our next section, which might be called Cure Music. Now I know you're not in a jazz club. music. So I want a bit Elvis. <laughs> Elvis didn't do jazz. Uh, okay. Uh. Cue the music. So we talked about track seven last time about the approach, and I went away and did some musicking. You did indeed. And I have played it to you. I have listened with my ears. <laughs> and we have kind of figured out a way forward, haven't we? I think so, yeah. Do you want me to talk through what I did? Yeah, talk through your process. Let's have a... Okay, so track six was about these two characters colliding and I would say merging in a way. Well, I think this is what's interesting about this track is that I saw them as obviously two completely separate entities that were going to hit and yeah. then it was all going to be the bounce off each other and it would be all kind of all in the nasty side of things. And you flipped that on its head and said, actually, what if they came together? Yes, I've, I've taken a slightly flipped approach in that I've kind of merged them a little. I don't know. That, that's what I took from the end of track six. It was mm. kind of um, this collision in a way. And the aftermath has left this merging of the characters. Yeah. And that might be symbolic of collaboration. It might be symbolic of, I don't know, physically melding in some way. Who were misses? Well, you know, in a sci-fi hybrid alien or, oh, right. or, or in, you know, wherever was, your mind might talk- take it, Dan. <clears throat> yeah, I was, I was talking sexy time. <laughs> so, yes, I was suddenly thinking it doesn't necessarily need to be this good versus evil thing. Yeah. And so I went down a kind of a surprising route, I suppose, where this new thing is surprised that it's reached this destination mm. when it wasn't expecting to. And um, yeah. I think maybe it's a little metaphor for life. Yeah. So it starts out, uh, I've used some of your sound design there, Colin the Uneasy Whale and the the Cello Wasps, they make an appearance too. Yeah. Uh, And they set the scene for this really uncertain place. And the piano, which is now centred, because we panned them for the different characters, takes on both of the character themes at first. And it also takes on this effect rather than the piano signal. I suppose. I wanted to really bring out that uneasiness, like you would wake up after an accident or something and you're still coming to and you're not quite sure 
what's happened. Slightly dazed. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the use of the effect there, which I imagine you can replace with the effect that we've used before. Yeah, uh, you, yeah. You've done that your end, so I'm hoping that you can do that again. And so, yes, yeah, starting out like that and then slowly driven away by the pure piano as this new, I suppose, you could call it character three, I don't, I don't know, or this new kind of hybrid of, of the two characters represented by the pure piano again without that effect. And then having these echoes of the previous characters still happening in the, the panning. So you've got yeah. hard left yeah. and hard right. You've got these echoes of, of what's happening in the, uh, in the main melody. So then we have a new theme, a, a new character theme, I suppose, which takes a little journey from character one and two, and then it settles on these like, three or four notes. Really. Yeah. I think it needs what you've done uh, with some of the other replacing instruments yeah. to have the continuity of the previous tracks. For instance, the, the strings that you had on an early track, which come in and out, I can't remember which number that was. Uh, was it track? Track three, I think. Three, yeah. So I think maybe using those same strings would be good. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, but I was thinking maybe a new counter melody to complement the new piano line. Yeah. I was just thinking in a, well, we're going to have to start building this up again to a new event. So what can you introduce there to really evolve the music? Yeah, I think what you've done with the end section of it, so you've done this very clever thing of putting these two themes together and that becomes something new, and then it moves on to this, what you call euphoric part. Now, in the original one that you sent me, there were some drums and some string ostinatos and things, and you've now taken the drums out of there, which I think was the right thing to do. I'm just wondering stylistically if it's too much of a change and whether actually we could do the build-up in the string writing rather than mm. putting things in. So the strings themselves could build and evolve rather than having sort of the bed of the strings and then these ostinatos going and stuff. So we could actually just build a bit more emotion into it with yeah, yeah. With, with that. Okay. The other thing is, of course, I can add a bit more power. We could stick some uh, synth bass yes. in underneath to add a bit more weight and a bit more. And again, that can get bigger as it goes. Absolutely, uh, yes. yes. And if you did want something movement-wise, um, we've already used all sorts of ostinatory type stuff, whether it be synth or piano. So maybe we could look at doing something that was a little more similar to what we've already done. Yes. Or should we be, or should we be doing something well, different? I don't know. We, we did have... A brief conversation about actually the last track is being at the liminal zone, the event that changes everything. Doesn't mm. necessarily then mean that you have to stick to what every, we've done. What we've done before. Yeah. 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 So I don't think introducing new things at this point is necessarily a bad thing. No. But on the other hand, I think we do need that continuity. Yeah, definitely. We're thinking of it as a piece as you would do if you were doing it to an actual drama. You think of the whole thing. You don't just think of each individual cue. Yeah. Um, you think of the overarching sound of that score. So adding new, adding the odd new thing for characters and something, you know, that's fine. But just changing the sound palette every time would be uh, yes, would be yeah. unwise. Yes, yes. Inevitably, it's somewhere down the middle. Yeah, like most things. Um, are you suggesting uh, giving that a little pass at yourself on the strings? Yes. That would be great. I'd be happy to do that. Fantastic. I have bounced all of the audio files for you. Excellent. And I've also bounced the MIDI files for you, so you Ooh, can manipulate the notes. And, uh, what a treat. And also just put those into instruments of your choosing. Cool. So I've kind of made it fairly loose. I've uh, left you plenty to play with, I good. think. Good, good, good. Over to me, then. Over to you, Dan. And I think rather than making this a really, really long section for this episode, we'll give you some time to actually experiment with that. And uh, we'll see the results of track seven, the aftermath, the double English, <laughs> on the next episode. <laughs> yes, that is, that is what I called the file when I created it. <laughs> aftermath in brackets, double English. And then you'll be on to track eight, detention. <laughs> Detention. <laughs> <laughs>
Simon has written and supervised source music from Jane Austen to contemporary programs. From his first job writing jazz for the ball sequences in 2001's Love in a Cold Climate to classic drama such as Downton Abbey and Mr Selfridge, Simon has also helped actors and actresses mime piano playing and has assisted with dance sequences for choreographers Paul Harris, Diana Scrivener and Caroline Pope. His most recent on-screen music supervision was the ball sequence in Julian Fellow's upcoming Belgravia. Simon Whiteside, welcome to the Making a Soundtrack podcast. Very good to be here. So, Simon, at what point in a production do you usually get involved and with whom do you liaise? Well, pre-production is obviously the first point of call because a script will turn up with a ball sequence or uh, a character plays the piano or something like that written down. Sometimes they'll have specific idea what that is. So our character plays the Moonlight Sonata because it has to be the Moonlight Sonata to make the script work or it might just be plays a piece in the style of Mozart and at that point I would obviously probably write something really to save anybody any issues with copyright or um, performance copyright those sorts of things so it gives the production full license then to use the music and also obviously gives me PRS which is nice yes uh, so there's a it's a sort of win-win there and that could be with it could be the director, it could be choreographer, if it's a dance sequence, it could be a producer, but nearly always it's either a director or a choreographer. So you have liaised with these people and then you'll make a mock-up of that track? So I tend to make a MIDI mock-up uh, for a pre-record because that is in some ways the, the quickest way to get something to discuss with the person who I'm working for. I mean, obviously... I'm also often working for a composer who doesn't have the time working on a different job at that point in time, because obviously pre-production for one show could be in the post-production for the other show they're scoring. So that could be months or even a year away, uh, and they don't have the time to, to, to do that themselves. So I will do a MIDI mock-up, and then for a choreographer, they can say, can we go faster, can we go slower, can we extend this bit by eight bars Oh, I'd really quite like a Charleston feel in the in the second eight bars. Is that possible? Those sorts of things that can be. So, so the MIDI mock-up at that point is really useful because you can just manipulate that however they want. Yeah, and it's, uh, for want of a better word, free until if you recorded everything and then they said, "Can we put a Charleston bit in?" It's like, well, we've got to get eight musicians back into the studio, mm-hmm. and that will be expensive. So, it, it saves on on the potential. I mean, some, sometimes, like the Belgravia stuff was all pre-recorded because it was all Haydn, Mozart, Strauss, waltzes and stuff like that. And that's not going to change. Although I'm sure it did get cut about in in post-production, which is another reason for using a MIDI mock-up, in my opinion, because you can then record the bit. You, you know, let's say I do three minutes because they need three minutes on the shoot. Well, it might only be 30 seconds on the final programme. So why record three minutes of music when it's only going to be 30 seconds? Particularly if it's a show with lots of music in it, where you have one recording session that covers all that episode. And if you have to record too much, you have to have a longer session, etc. Mm. So to illustrate that MIDI mock-up, you very, very kindly offered to mock-up a jazz trio version of one of our tracks yesterday it ended up being uh it ended up with a guitar and a vibraphone in there as well so uh, we, we ended up with a quintet so i've, I've already oh, yes. blown the budget styling it out <laughs> styling it out um so yes that will now be playing uh underneath uh, our little chat here so uh three two one and go jazz trio <laughs> so that's yeah that's now playing so if we imagine there's a, a scene, for instance, in this Imagine TV drama that we're doing where a band is playing in a club, that music will physically be playing in the scene. Yeah. I mean, it could be it could be a hint, couldn't it? If, it, if it's a, a crime-type drama, it could be a hint, subtle hint there that something yeah. like Location 1 is, in fact, where the murder happened, as opposed yeah. to yeah. Location so, 2. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a lovely way of uh, tying in the composer's work. I mean, when I watch a drama, I don't necessarily think, oh, that's part of the soundtrack, you know, some kind of background music. But to, to offer those subtle hints, I think, is a really clever way of tying it in. It, it can work yeah. in... I mean, there was um, 
there was a really good film I, I'm about to call it Frankie and Johnny I think possibly was that Al Pacino it, Al, yeah that's the right that's the right film if I've got the right title <laughs> but the it, that was based on a play and that play featured Claire de Lune by Debussy as as you know in the script as part of the idea behind the play so that piece of music features all the way through in various guises and I, I seem to remember again this is a uh, it's, it's a while ago that film but I seem to remember at one point they're walking along a street and there's a busker just playing a solo saxophone version of it and it doesn't really make any difference to the scene itself in terms of you know there's a busker playing and and you walk past a busker and that's you know a New York scene or whatever but um, the fact that they're playing the tune that's referenced in the script uh, throughout yeah. the, the whole thing brings a sort of subtext, I think. Yeah. So it can do yeah. that, you know. Yeah. And, and the one that I've written um, for you guys uh, on your theme is just a way of, you know, most people, possibly even you, wouldn't have noticed it if I'd sent it. You know, uh, you, prob well, you probably would. It's quite a clear theme, isn't it? But, yeah, yeah. It's well, you know, it took me. A couple of listens to really drill down where things were and, and what you'd done with it. And um, yeah, once I heard it, it was unmistakable, but it, it's it's kind of disguised in a way. Yeah, well, I reharmonized to make it more jazzy. I reharmonized yeah. a lot of the, but the melody is, is fundamentally yeah. your your melody for, yeah. for that location track. Current track three or four, I can't remember now. Yeah, track three. Track, track three. three uh, yeah. yeah, so we're currently called Location, but uh, it'll end up being something else, I'm, I'm sure. So you're prepared for the shoot. You've done all your pre-production work. What happens then? Are you are you involved on set? Quite often, yes. I mean, the so we probably ought to explain, you know, one of these um, moments where you get the old dictionary out. The music I'm talking about and we're talking about today is referred to as source music quite often and that's be yeah. that's because you can see the source of the music where it's coming from on the screen that could that could be a radio uh, television it could be a live band but you there's a physical representation of a sound creating entity on the screen um in film music uh, sort of courses they'll often jazz it up by calling it diegetic or non-diegetic music diegetic, yeah. uh, so <laughs> but source music to me is is a, is a pretty clear so i'll be on set. i mean obviously i don't need to be on set if it's coming out of a radio that's uh, the first obvious one but if it is coming out of musicians uh then i do tend to go and there are two primary reasons for that one is that when they're playing along i, I can check that in, in the best case scenario, so in Belgravia, we had proper session players uh, on screen miming to what they'd recorded in uh, previously in a studio. So that, that was all fine. But quite often you'll get extras or supporting artists, as they're called these days, who have musical abilities ticked on their form. Okay. And it says, I play the clarinet. And, and um, sometimes they're lying. <laughs> or more correctly, <laughs> they're, they're no. uh, over-enthusiastic about their ability. Uh, um, lying is probably harsh. But yes, they, you know, I played the clarinet in school sort of thing. Yeah. And then you're giving them a Weber concerto to play, and then um, they're not going to do that. So, so when you've got, particularly when you have uh, non-pro musicians on set, it can be very, if it looks really bad, Sometimes mm -hmm. a director is so focused on what they're doing in the rest of the shot, which is what they're there for, is that, you, you know, know that person in the background is playing those guitar chords that should be going one, two, three, four. They're playing one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, and it's all <laughs> over the place. So um, that's one of the main reasons. And that helps to make sure that when it comes to be cut, you have a half a chance of getting it to look good. And um, disgusted from Tunbridge Wells won't write letters. <laughs> <laughs> when they're miming along do they do they just play the track back or do you use clicks or what's what's yeah. the usual way of doing it i don't know if you um when you've uh, played the track that is in the background there, there are five clicks on the front of that so two two yeah. bars and one one beat missing um and that is in order to if they're playing it back live in the room the bet your best results for musicians if, if if they're allowed to play even if the instruments period instruments that you get from there's a company up here called Beat Around the Bush, which uh, is a music 
instrument hire company for film in Shepherd's Bush. So a nice name, guys. And uh, <laughs> they will send out instruments, many of which aren't really functional because they're, you know, they're old, picked up at in junk shops and all sorts of things, but they look right. Yeah. So, so what comes out of the instruments it could be a god-awful noise. But if the musicians are able to play along in the room with the track, then they it will look like, particularly for drummers, they can actually hit the drums as opposed to try and mm, not hit yeah. the drums, which always looks pretty weird. Yeah, it um, mm. It's a little easier to pretend to blow an instrument. Um, and quite a lot of the, all, all the stringed instruments that they send out, they're, um, well, there's no rosin on the bow so that they, it just slides across the string without making a noise. Yeah. So when they're miming along, if if it, the music's in the room, and that's what I would always recommend for close-up shots, so that play the music, let them play, no one else is in shot, it doesn't matter. But when you cut to the important stuff where the two lead characters are acting their dialogue, discussing what they have to in the scene, there's dancers behind them, and then in the distance there's a band. At that point, the dancers and the band will be on in-ear monitoring because obviously the actors need to be recorded as cleanly as possible. Yeah. And in fact, you'll see nearly always in those sorts of shots, it's a fairly tight two-shot upper torso, and they will have put carpet down for the dancers to minimise the foot noise. And, you know, you just hope that the band then are out of focus enough for it not really to matter if when they edit it, they have to take... You get to different points in the music each time that you reshoot that sequence, which you might do yeah. you know, five or six times before the director's happy. With the musicians, how much notice do they have? I know in orchestral sessions they'll turn up and, you know, they're professionals who will sit and sight read. But with the actors who have varying levels of experience and skill, do you have a session before where you can kind of talk through things? Yeah, so if it's actually a character who's playing the piano or, uh, you know, I I worked on a show called Harlots, which was set in um, Covent Garden in, at the time of um, Thomas Arne period. And one of the lead characters played the harpsichord in that. And she came around to my studio and I, I helped her through the pieces that we'd chosen. Okay. Uh, not to play them because she wouldn't have got there, but to look like she's playing them. And also then to, you know, you, I talk to directors about, uh, depends how experienced they are, but if they're very experienced, they know this already. But, you know, don't do any hand close-ups of a, an actress playing on on a piano uh, get a hand double shoot that close you know don't get don't get me to mime a petite actress <laughs> <laughs> mr butcher hands <laughs> thunderbirds moment i always always loved the thunderbirds where they you know the puppets would be doing stuff and then when they had to actually pick something up or something they do a close shot and it would be an actual person yeah. you know going over to yeah. to do it so those sorts of things really and i i had in mr selfridge two of the characters got together and sang a song song what i wrote and I had them round to re- pre-record their own stuff and also then to learn the song. And at that point, I could change the key if it was too high for one of them or whatever, you know. And then on set, they, I think they sang it themselves as well, you know, sang along as well. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so, so it, can be, it can be quite varied. But the, the primary point of me being there is to make sure that everything goes on to camera as, as best as is possible. I mean, there have been occasions, probably the most... Um, exciting thing i've ever done is help the grips get to the right point in a shot uh, on a track uh, when dame kiri takano i was singing in downtown abbey oh wow yeah and uh, uh temporarily a director for uh, you know half an hour wow and it was very interesting it was that a very controversial rape scene that happened and um we worked very hard to follow the script and then in the end they had to bottle it and they couldn't they couldn't get it out they couldn't do exactly what we wanted. So um, as is often with things on shoots, there's lots of work goes in that doesn't get used. I heard that you have occasionally been in period costume yourself. Yes. Um, these days, wardrobe departments hate me. I'm six foot five <laughs> and uh, not a slim man. So um, I don't do it as much. They like people who are sort of five foot eight and, you know, 30, 30 inch waist so that that's what most of the costumes in the world are, you know. Off the peg stuff, yeah. Yeah, off the peg stuff. But I've done um, all sorts of things. I've played the Bones in a Sherlock Holmes thing. I've uh, <laughs> I've played the banjo in um, Downton Abbey. Played the violin in Downton Abbey. I've played the piano in Downton Abbey <laughs> at various different points. <laughs> Superb. Uh, in, the, in the series. And, yeah, all sorts of different things. Mm. Cool. So Very good. So you've been on set. You've... 
supervised everything there, made sure that the director and everyone has got exactly what they need. Is that it, or is there anything in post afterwards? Well, very often, as we've already hinted at, the edit will drive a coach and horses through music. Yeah. One of the reasons that the very early days of sound recording, they used to record the music at the same time. Um, they soon worked out that that makes it very difficult to edit yeah. because we, our eyes are very happy due to our visual system where we can look around and we can remember what's behind us. That's part of how our brain works with our eyes. But our ears, they like continuous. They like bar one to go through to bar five without interruption, not have something weird in the middle. So once the track has been in, in the all these different shots that have been taken, they could, they'll, they'll almost certainly be slightly out musically because no, no actors are metronomic in their delivery of lines. So the editor will choose a master track, really, and cut to that. But then often stuff will be quite badly out. Mm. So I, in, in some situations, I've had to rewrite the piece this is where the MIDI comes in handy again. Rewrite the piece to fit the hands. Yeah. And, and you don't have to do much sometimes just to make it, you don't have to alter the music much just to make it work. I love doing that, by the way. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I've had stop motion animated sequences of someone playing the piano and I've just followed where their hands are going. And suddenly it's just this crazy piece of music. And I absolutely love it. Yeah. You know, you're going down a rabbit hole and you don't know where it, what it's going to sound like. It's, uh, it's quite liberating, actually. Yes, there's no way you'd ever write that music, but, but, you, but the, the, the yeah. pictures tell you to. It sounds sort of like thing. a nightmare. I'm such a control freak. That would freak me out, having to follow something. <laughs> oh, no. But that, that's why, I mean, obviously the other thing to, with directors, any, if there for any budding directors who listen to this, podcast a good way of controlling that is to have any close-ups of the band start and finish a, a scene not mm -hmm. come in necessarily in the middle but give yourself enough coverage so some quite often they'll shoot the band playing the whole playing through the whole piece so they can drop in in and out where necessary uh, yeah. to, to edit the scene it depends how long the scene is really but the key points are establishing music that is there and live Get a start from a band, and remember that sometimes you come into a room. Not 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 every scene starts at the beginning, so you know you might want to start. That's why they record the whole thing sometimes. Okay, we'll come in here, and then um, then we've got the ability to have the music pre-roll the scene, so it can be we're in the other room, we hear that piece start up, and then we cut to the main room or whatever. You know, so there's there are quite a lot of things to think about, and uh, directors can be you know, first-time directors can have quite a an ordeal in on music sequences. Yeah, well, I think like like you mentioned, the visual part of it is to a degree non-linear, whereas obviously we we deem music as a very linear thing. So to try and marry the two up uh, is always going to be a juggling act. Whereas, uh, like you say, if they film the whole piece, so then they've got something to drop into, and they've a timeline as well to follow. If they film the whole piece, you know they've got they have the musicians playing that piece in time so they have a linear thing to follow so yeah. that would make sense yeah yeah that's always quite a good uh if, you know let's face it i mean on the belgravia shoot there were bits that they didn't in the end film mm -hmm. of the band because they just ran out of time because it's such a big day yeah. they had all sorts of it was massive crowds um sequence so lots of dancers there was some scottish dancing there was some bagpipers there was some all sorts of stuff uh going on and in the end, the band sat in the gallery. I think they probably did 20 minutes' work in two days in, in, in reality. A <laughs> bit more than that because they, they had to mime in the background when they weren't in shot, even in case they got in shot, wow. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> but, uh, but the actual bit of music, bit of time, they, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour of shooting time, uh, and then they had to not do the rest because they had so much else to cover, which was much more important than a bunch of musicians. Yeah. You have to take that on the chin and, and you have to understand yeah. that when you go to a, a film shoot, although it looks glamorous in the end, it's far from glamorous on the day. It's uh, a lot of reading, a lot of sitting around. So, Simon, we've been a little bit topsy-turvy with our questioning here. We followed your process through a production, essentially. Yeah. But my last question was going to be something that we ask everyone, which is what advice would you give your younger self or someone trying to start out in the TV production industry? But I was wondering if you could maybe include in that how you started out in the industry. Well, I went to the National Film and TV School at a time when they were really changing. So it was a, it was a time when 
people like Nick Park had been at the film school making a grand day out for seven years or something, and the animators would obviously would often hang around for many years to finish their projects, and people would sort of come and go, and it was a bit, it was a bit like a production village really. And when Henning Camera, good name for a film school guy, <laughs> came in, he he wanted to make it into a proper course, academically validated, blah blah blah. So I was very lucky. I, I was there with Rob Lane. Um, you probably know Rob Lane from yeah. many many a TV school, and we were really lucky because they were basically trying to sort of sweep the projects through that hadn't been finished, trying to finish them off. And that was a really great. I just wrote loads and loads of music for loads and loads of films. Um, all, all short, uh, lots of animations, some documentaries, lots of dramas, and it was brilliant. And Rob and I kind of shared that workload, and we didn't really have a course, actually. You know, we came out, we're graduates of the NFTS, but we don't get an MA or anything like they do these days because we didn't have to write a thesis or anything like that. We got, obviously, education and lots of experience. So when I left to film school with Rob, I I was basically his orchestrator and, um, well, uh, Love in a Cold Climate was one of his first TV jobs and Rosamund Pike's first TV job, I think. Ah. Very young, straight out of drama school uh, at that point. So that's really how I, I, I got into it through that method of, you know, and, and all the people who go to somewhere like the NFTS are quite likely to be working in the industry afterwards. It's one of the sort of premier places to study it's changed a lot when i left college first time after music degree there was only kind of one post-grad jazz course available at the Guildhall. now there are countless and it's the same with film studies really that it wasn't really a thing in 95 yeah. <laughs> it was only, only yeah. starting to be a thing so that's where i started out and then of course it's um word of mouth connections those sorts of things from there a lot of stuff through Chamber Orchestra of London, Cool Music, who represent composers and fix sessions. So they've been a strong employer for me through the through the years. Would you have done anything differently in advising your younger self? What would you say? Well, Rob was very, very ambitious. I was less ambitious. And I think probably you have to go with what your personality is. Okay. Mm. If you want to be the next Hans Zimmer, but that's a that's a big a big ask and you have to push hard, very, very hard. That's not really me. And I, I've always wanted to work in music. When I was growing up, I wanted to work in music. And I remember when I was young, I, I went to see Star Wars and it blew me away. That score blew me away. I thought, yeah. wow, how do you do that? I'd love to do that. And really, that's kind of one of the seminal moments in, in my past of thinking, that's so complicated. I wonder how he does it. And set me off on the O-level, A-level degree music path to try and find out how you make orchestral noise like that you've got to love it it's a bit like professional sport if you don't love it you're not going to take the knocks you're not going to have the resistance to being chucked and uh, dropped and fired like nearly every hollywood composer ever has been you've got to have that passion i've written down a few little things here actually oh actually the first thing i wrote was it is slightly easier than trying to teach ravens to fly underwater <laughs> uh, not sure if that's very helpful <laughs> it sounds very similar i use i use one for um describing trying to get the kids out of the house uh which is which is trying to stick a bag of cats through a letterbox <laughs> yes indeed uh, i've got a couple of things here written down which uh, i think i would tell myself in an earlier and uh, my earlier self and tell anyone starting out so the first rank of things that things that you really should do write music every day listen to music every day and study a bit every day i think all of us should always do that all the time as musicians otherwise you go off the boil really mm. uh, and you and the, the passion should drive that anyway it shouldn't be complicated and people say oh well everyone listens to music every day i, I don't really mean hear music, I mean, sit down and listen to it, you know, actively participate in getting deep into it. Then I've got a, a set of second rank things to do. Uh, one of the things people very rarely say is, how do you get into the business is like, be a good person, be yeah, someone who yeah. can people can work with. So work every day on having a positive attitude. And if someone says, do you think we can do this? Try and make your first answer yes, rather than no, for example, even if it is hard. It's like if you go, oh, yeah, yeah. And I know it's going to cost you. That's not going to get you very far. 
then I've got Feed Your Creative Mind, then that's outside of music, so reading literature, going to plays, go to art exhibitions, other stuff, go out for walks in the country, whatever, um, just to top up the creative tank. Hmm. And also I've got learn, This is these are all less important than the first three, but learn the job of the person above and below you in the workflow. So if, you, if you're an orchestrator, don't make a copyist's life hell by doing it in a way which makes it twice as long to do. That's a great tip, yeah. And if you're, uh, if you're not the conductor, then, you know, make sure your score's big enough to read on the stand, that sort of thing. Uh, if you're working for a composer, make sure the composer is completely on board with everything you're doing for them. So if you are writing source music, don't buy, don't, it's not your job, it's the composer's job. You're their proxy make sure they are fully across it. So when the director rings up and says, oh, you know that piece that uh, they're dancing to and they don't, oh, what piece? Mm. They've got to be able to say, oh, yes, that uh, yeah, Simon said blah, 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 and yeah, it was really good, I liked it. And then the final thing I've got here is network with people and probably, although it's great seeing everyone at those sorts of uh, compositorium um, scorecast things, actually it's more useful for musicians to network with editors, directors, and producers than yeah. other musicians yeah. to a certain extent. I mean, not people like me who help other compo help composers. Perhaps it's equally important for me to meet composers, but I think also meeting the people who commission the stuff really is, is uh, yeah. very, much very yeah, useful. Yeah. I think there's um, some great stuff in there and some themes that we've talked about before as well, I think. The actively listening to music I think is very important because I think we all put it on in the background, I didn't learn from studying in the in the ordinary way of doing it. I mean, I literally, I taught myself the guitar at 14 by listening to records and working them out. And that kind of then, because I, I was quite quick at that and I, I could do it, that then went on. So when I listen to a score, I disassemble it in my brain mm. and then can recreate it. It's something Sam's always said, because I, I said to him, oh, I just kind of wish I'd done the whole sort of, you know, a proper musical education. And he said, yeah, but you can put a piece of music on. You can get something, uh, one of these massive hybrid scores, and you'll be able to work out and recreate everything that's in there because you've taught your brain to do that. Well, I, I think I think film music, I mean, it's it's less of a problem than it used to be, but um, film music for me is, is like jazz, which is that you, with jazz, your best way of learning is from Thelonious Monk himself mm. by listening to him, copying him, you have the luxury of recordings, and these days you have the luxury of programs that will slow that recording down so you can really get into it. And um, that way you will pick up all the subtle things. That, of course, with jazz it's performance, but but film scores, you you didn't used to be able to get hold of any notation, really, for film yeah. scores. And so the only way to do it was to listen to the soundtrack albums. And actually one little tip um, I would give to anyone who's trying to come up through the industry as a musician, as a composer, when a film comes out, listen to the soundtrack album before you go and see the film. Then the first time you see the film, you're pre-warned with what the cues are, and you will think, oh, that's how he used that. I wondered what that noise that's was interesting. in. I kept hearing that thing, that little theme. Now I know what that little theme is attached to. I have done that a lot. I've been really excited for a film, and I thought to myself, I shouldn't listen to the music beforehand, but I'm going to. <laughs> and the amount of things that I have picked up and so I'm, I'm there watching the film and then all of a sudden, oh, and I'll hear something and it'd be, ah, right, okay, I understand, that's re that's really clever. I mean, there's about there's obviously value in going to see a film purely for, as a punter. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's very easy to get involved in the film and, and do what we, all good film composers should be in the background and not sort of poking you in the chest all the time saying, yeah, hello, I had a bit of a Facebook discussion thing going on on Schoolcast the other day about contemporary music in period dramas and how it works or does it work mm, and can it work yeah. and blah 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 and uh, there's a particular Apple TV show which I'm sure is aimed at youngsters so that's a you know not not a fuddy duddy old gits like me but um <laughs> but their use of music is very bold but to me completely bizarre um mm. and I find it takes me out of the picture quite a lot and I don't know if that's what they intend or not but uh, even to the extent that they mix and match stuff on screen that is what you might call traditional. So, there were, in fact, mm -hmm. the Moonlight Sonata thing I mentioned, there is a character in that 
show playing the Moonlight Sonata, and then suddenly we we break out into a rap sort of sequence, or they're they're dancing yeah. to uh, they're doing some country dancing to a country dancing track, and then suddenly they change style of dancing into. I don't know, K- K-pop or something. Yeah, I think sometimes it's difficult, very difficult to turn off the analytical part of your brain. So yeah, I'll be watching something and I'll, th- and I'll think to myself, you know, oh, why did they come in there? That seems an odd place for the music to start. Or, you know, oh, that's gone on too long or this is a bit repetitive or whatever it is. And it's very difficult to turn that off. But the problem is that... You know, we're a small community of people who Absolutely. that matters to. Everybody else, it's it's water off a duck's back that I'm not entirely sure that they 100% notice. Although not having seen the, the programme, Simon, what you're saying about it changing style halfway through, I imagine that would throw anybody. Well, it's a statement, isn't it? It's, it's definitely, I mean, it's undoubtedly a statement. I think one of my, my if I have a bugbear with it, I'm, I, I don't, you know, I, I totally agree that people like Baz Luhrmann have really pulled it off the trouble is that most people don't have his taste mm. and um it's a bit like kubrick and his use of classical music in absolutely and tarantino's another one tarantino's another one when people have impeccable taste then it works but mm. in a way you can't just chuck anything on it um not saying that they i'm sure they that's not the point i mean they're, they're trying they are making a point with the music and i i did say I hadn't got that many in episodes in when I wrote that beginning of that post. I said, oh, they don't really worry too much about whether they're wearing an Apple Watch or something in this period drama. But to be fair, uh, they did at one point have a very modern lolly, very modern sweet on a stick, which uh, was evidently not, period. Well, you know, if Starbucks can be in uh, Game of Thrones, then... Well, uh... yeah. Anyway, I mean, the, I suppose our point is that... Yes, you're right. As as practitioners, we but I, th- I think we have a duty as practitioners to keep pushing forward. Yes, that's important, but also to keep up. You know, people don't get a choice of what music they hear on on a film. Yeah. They they get the music they're given, and we have to give them the best music that can be on that film. Really, don't we? It is noticeable, though, isn't it, when you see or hear music that is true to that period, and it feels like they've gone the extra mile to make sure that this is really true to that period. Well, there was a series called The Marvelous Miss Maisel. I don't know if you watched that. Yes, yes, loved it. The period music in that is absolutely spot on and, and fantastically mm. well shot. And, you know, whoever was music supervising on that did a fantastic job, in my opinion. Yeah. And another really good film, a particularly muso film to watch, is uh, The Red Violin. I don't know if you've ever watched that. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. But that is a brilliant example of mixture of music from the period but also it was written by do you know john carigliano he's a mm-hmm. he's um fundamentally he's a contemporary music composer but he's done some films and he he really pulled out all the all the stops on that film it's just absolutely brilliant so there's moments of sort of bark like fugal writing and passionate romantic violin concerto writing but they're all from his theme and then there's also bits of score which are obviously non... I think I used the word asynchronous in, in that post. And, and yes, it is asynchronous. It's modern technique of writing. But on the other hand, it didn't pull you out of the picture. It brought you into the picture. Mm. Yeah. The exception to the rule for me personally, as I've mentioned to you, Simon, is uh, Peaky Blinders, where you know I'm very much of your attitude of you, when you're watching something, you want the music to tie in just as much as the period costumes and things like that and when I first watched Peaky Blinders I was just a bit blown away actually at how well the music fitted despite it being you know 80 years out of date (laughs) yeah they're just really concentrated on the feel not necessarily being accurate with the music particularly but just making a scene feel like how they wanted it to feel yeah and I and in fact, I think um, originally Martin Phipps started that one, didn't he? It yeah. was uh, Paul, what's his surname, from Orbital. Paul Hartnell. Oh, yes. 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 Uh, he also was the composer on Harlots, or for some of it, anyway. And yeah. uh, it, it definitely can work. Yeah. But like you said, it, it will become dated quite quickly. Whereas if mm. you, you're just accurate, then you know, you're just listening to music from that period. I just remember watching the first episode of Peaky Blinders and thought, what the fudge is going on? 
It just, it just, uh, for me, it was, uh, you know, I was watching these gangsters and David Bowie was on and I'm like, this, this <laughs> radio head. Seriously, I was thinking this doesn't work. It took, it took a while for that. It takes two or three episodes, doesn't yeah, it? Before you're it did. fully immersed. It did. But then, then once you were in, you were in. Yeah. Again, I think the choices are really, really important. I, rem- I remember on, um, it was not long after, I think, uh, probably Moulin Rouge came out that, Rob scored a thing with Hen- uh, Henry VIII, and it was I think who's who's the gangster Ray? What's his name? Winston. Ray Winston. Oh yeah, I remember that. He played Henry. Yeah, and they had this ball sequence that where they had a Queen track or something in it, and for me it was like, well, that's in that sequence there. It's like, well, that's a choice you've made, and it seems bizarre to me to stick that. If you do series after series where that is your raison d'etre, you you create a, a an aesthetic, and if you make good choices, then it will work. And that that's where Baz Luhrmann always always does it well for me. He makes choices which please you as opposed to displease you, mm. or at least me anyway. A really good example of using modern music in a period piece is Westworld. I hadn't watched the original movie, so I didn't quite know what it was about. I knew they were kind of robots in it it's one of my faves i absolutely adore 70s sci-fi i think it's brilliant so in the first couple of episodes you're hearing this mechanical piano in the western bar playing these modern hits it almost takes you out of it and then you realize actually that's a link to the modern day and and there is this other side of it yeah i mean i think those fantasy things are really really important because for me it always it's always going to work better in sci-fi and fantasy because you have license to do that because mm. it's that your expectation to suspend your disbelief is higher in those genres mm. because the whole point of them is to stretch your world yes you wouldn't have a symphony orchestra in uh, on tatooine would you well maybe you do i don't know <laughs> there's a famous quote i um, can't remember it's the one guy stuck in a boat in the middle of the sea films like you know the old man in the sea or something and and the, one of the producers said i don't understand where where's the orchestra eh? it's out in the middle of the sea where's the orchestra and the, and the composer just turned and said, well, yeah, fair enough, but where's the camera? It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And, of course, it's subverted brilliantly in films like Blazing Saddles where you go through this sort of western village to the sound of Count Basie, turn around the corner, and Count Basie's band is there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but I don't know what the critical, um, coming back to that, Dickin- is Dickinson the programme I'm talking about, Emily mm. Dick- based on Emily Dickinson's life? and. I don't know what the critical thought of it is. I have to say everything else, this Apple TV, Apple Plus that I've seen has been you know, feature film quality in terms of its yeah. production. It's amazing stuff. And, of course, they can do a lot more on streaming TV. There's a lot of smoking and things like that in uh, For All Mankind. And, yes. And uh, yeah. more violence and things. I also think that what they've cottoned onto with the streaming and why it's so popular is that they can take something that they may have tried to distill down into a smaller thing and they can actually do it over a long period of time so they can really take their time over it. Mm. So a lot of these things, like Westworld, for example, they really take the time to let the thing evolve rather than having to go, okay, so we've got these story points, but we need, we've need we only got half the time to do it in, so let, let's lose this one, this one, and this one and then scrap them all together and we're... Well, yeah, I mean, Netflix seemed to me to be the... Sort of archetypal, and, and and Amazon TV picked up on this. They said, "Look, these are good feature films. Let's make them into series." So you get Hannah, for example, on on Prime was one of them. We have to also remember that a lot of those films were made from scripts that were taking books and contra- yep. making them smaller, and so they were able to go back to the book, as it were. And most recently with his Dark Materials, which yeah. Yeah. Uh, was crammed into an hour and a half on. That's a movie, yeah. Um, but works so I think works so much better as a TV series. Well, you get that length, don't you? And you yeah. know, I'm a big audio book listener, so I I've developed an understanding of how long novels are, if you like, mm. if you read mm. them out loud. And they go from some of the sort of James Bondy type things are quite short, three hours will do it. That's almost doable in a feature film, isn't it? But mm. a lot of them are nine, thirteen, fifteen hours long. And that's obviously much more TV slots or 45-minute TV slots and the like. Great. Well, Simon Whiteside, I think we've covered your production process from start to finish. 
Where can we find you online, Simon? I've got my own website, simonwhitesidemusic.com, which is fairly right. easy to remember. And there are links to other... So I write a lot. I write library music for an online platform called Audio Jungle. I don't know if you've heard of them. And there are links yep. to, to that sort yep. of thing. Uh, my SoundCloud page and things like that, okay. which cool. generally speaking, my SoundCloud page is trying out samples and trying to see which of my string samples I think sound best and things like that, which can be quite useful if people are looking to yes, invest indeed. in something. Although, you know, things change so quickly that you'd be bankrupt if you bought everything. So <laughs> <laughs> We'll include those links in the show notes for the Brilliant. podcast. That's very kind uh, of you. But it's, yeah, thank you so much for a mocking up one of our tracks for us in a yeah. jazz trio style. That's absolutely just blew our minds, didn't it, Dan? Yes, yeah, and did. um And B, for joining us to share your experiences and your your career. Well, thanks. It's good to be uh, amongst the likes of Tristan and Sam and, the, and other colleagues who uh, who I know have contributed well so far to the to the. We've been very podcast. lucky. We've been we very lucky been, with our guests. Have. Yeah. Yeah. Keep thanks. up the good work, guys. Thank you very Thank much, you. Simon. So I have a message here through the wonder of Instagram from uh, a young man called Jack. Hello, Jack. Hello, Jack. Jack says, absolutely amazing. Loving all the guest stars and the little things you don't hear on other podcasts. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm not sure what we're doing that other people aren't doing on podcasts. Mm, No. Maybe it's your wonderful singing why thank you it is all about me and my singing <laughs> or maybe it's the amazing guests that we've had on uh, which it would be worth people going back and listening if they happen to well, i think it's probably the guests yeah or maybe it's the album that we're writing alongside the podcast mm, maybe it is could be could be you know that's pretty good too yeah whatever it is we'll keep doing it won't we we will That sounds a bit like a rap, don't you think? It does sound a little bit like a rap, yeah. That's a rap! How do you find us? Makingasoundtrack.com will tell you all you need to know. Links to the podcast, social media links, and there's information about us as well. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would make our day if you could give us a positive rating or review. And if you enjoyed the episode, hit that share button and recommend it to someone. They'll thank you for it. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye.